We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about our relationships, relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome. I'm Julie Sedenko here with relationship expert Leslie Vernick. And today we're talking about trying harder. Trying harder is seen as a good thing in our society. And often it is. It's a great thing. There's the old saying if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And it's not bad advice. Unless you're in a destructive marriage, then it could be very dangerous advice. Now, the typical pastor's counsel is to try harder to be more submissive, to have more sex, to not push his buttons. Leslie, why is this kind of trying harder in a destructive marriage a negative thing? Well, I'm really glad you brought that up, Julie, because I think so many women have gotten that kind of advice and it feels so biblical, you know, just to forgive more, pray more, submit more, be more willing to be encouraging, have more sex, but it feeds three lies that are really toxic to the well-being of the marriage and to the individuals in the marriage. And so let me unpack these lies because there's nothing wrong with trying harder and even doing those things in a relatively healthy marriage where trying harder begets a reciprocal response where the other person tries harder too. And you're able to talk through things and you're trying to, you know, solve your problem together and you're trying harder together. But when one person is doing all the trying harder in a sacrificial kind of way where there is no reciprocity, it feeds a lie. And the first lie is this. All right, pastor, I believe you. I'm the woman who's in this destructive marriage. I've just gotten this counsel and I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to love hard. I'm going to submit more. I'm going to not keep a record of wrongs. I'm going to not bring things up that bother me. I'm just going to be his cheerleader and speak about all the good. And what it actually does is it feeds a lie in her spirit that if I do all these things, God will bless me with a husband who loves me back who doesn't keep treating me as an object to use. He will start to see my value. He will love me. And in a destructive marriage, that doesn't happen because it feeds two lies in the destructive husband's heart. And those lies are first, well, it's your fault that I act that way. If only you did have sex whenever I wanted. If only you did do what I wanted to do in the bedroom, I wouldn't have to watch porn. If only you did submit more, we wouldn't have these kind of arguments. If only you didn't push my buttons, I wouldn't hit you. And so now it becomes the wife's responsibility to manage the husband's temper, his sexual appetites, his decisions, his acting out. And so he believes it's her fault when he sins against her because she wasn't the perfect wife. She wasn't doing what he wanted. And so it kind of turns into this terrible negative storm. And the third lie it feeds in him is that I'm entitled. It feeds his entitlement and his selfishness. I'm entitled to a wife that never provokes me, that never disappoints me, that never has any needs of her own that I should have to meet, that she should be there for me, do what I want, be what I want, never upset me, never hurt me. Well, who can be that kind of wife? It's an unrealistic expectation. You're a human being. And so you are going to disappoint your husband. You are going to ask him to do things that he might not like. And if he blames you for acting out because of that, then it just is a downward spiral from there. And so that's why the typical advice of trying harder actually makes things worse. 
So what about that scripture though, in first Peter, where it says wives submit yourselves to your own husband so that if any of them don't believe they can be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Let's look at that because it says, and even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly life will speak to them without any words. So I think that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. What is a godly life of a woman? Is it to just wrap herself around serving her husband's felt needs or enabling his destructive behavior without a word of forgiving 70 times seven with no consequences? Is that really godly behavior or is that enabling behavior? that's masquerading as godly Mm -hmm. behavior. And so I think we have to really look at what the Bible says by your godly lives. And so what is a godly life? What is a godly woman who lives with a foolish, destructive man? Maybe she might be godly enough to call the police if he's abusing her. So she's not going to say a word. She's not going to say, stop and don't hit me. And you shouldn't be doing this anymore. She's done that. doesn't work. But she might, by her godly behavior, call the police for his welfare, as well as for hers, where the tough consequences of going to jail might influence him, speak to him without any words. She might separate because of her godly behavior saying, hey, this behavior that you're exhibiting in our marriage is so destructive to me and our children. I will not continue to act as if this is okay. She doesn't have to say it mean. She doesn't have to say it in a cruel way. And maybe she doesn't say it at all anymore. She just leaves by her godly behavior, right? So in a different version, it says, when we suffer for doing what is right. And in Matthew 5, for example, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for doing what is right. And so godly behavior is doing what is right, not enabling a selfish, entitled, destructive, deceitful person to continue their behaviors towards you without any consequence. That's so different from what we normally hear in the church, which is just forgive, just forgive, just forgive. And it is this enabling, placating behavior that if we think about it really is not good for our husbands. And I think that's really the key point. We have our own work to do because when you live with a person like this, you're tempted to turn out just like him. You can easily fall into resentment and bitterness and repaying evil for evil and all of that ugly behavior right back. And that is not God's way. And so when you are acting as a godly person in an ungodly environment, uh, let me give a story about this happening with my teenager. So when my teenager would give me a smart mouth response to me. Yes, please. I want to know this. (laughs) Tell me what you did. So my teenager would be smart alecky to me. I would kind of go off on him. And then he would say, okay, so mom, you're the Christian counselor. You're the relationship expert and you're not acting any better than I'm acting. And he, oh, he was did right. Not. He, he did. Not that he did. He was, but he was right. Wow. And so what happens when you act right, when you act godly in the midst of an ungodly person, their ungodly behavior is so obvious. Mm-hmm. it's hard to blame you for it. Now, whether or not that's going to convict them, you don't know, because Jesus was very godly and the Pharisees still wanted to kill him. 
So I think we kind of take this verse in Peter as a guaranteed promise, and it's not, but it is a pattern that when you act in the right way, when someone is going off on you, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Here's another example. How many of us have been furious about something? I'll give an example. I was calling the airlines because they messed up my reservation. I was so upset because I'd missed my plane and this was canceled and it was delayed and I was, wasn't going to get to a speaking event in time. And so I'm calling the airlines and I'm so, you know, loud and bossy and mean. And the woman was so understanding and so kind, mm-hmm. right? Now she could have said, Hey, I'm not talking to you this way. This, I'm having a boundary here. I'm not allowing you to talk to me this way. She could have done that. And that would have just infuriated me. Right. But she didn't do that. She was just, oh, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Vernick. I totally understand. Let me help you. And as soon as she started, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm acting like a total jerk. <laughs> it's like a lot of conviction. Yeah. Yes. That's what this is talking about in First Peter. Okay. So without a word, your godly behavior gives the opportunity to another person to self-reflect. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So her godly behavior in that moment gave me an opportunity. She didn't give me a word about me. She didn't say, you're being unkind. You're being disrespectful. You're being rude. She didn't give me any feedback about me. All she did was take care of her side of the street. And she acted in a godly way, whether she was godly or not, she just acted in a good way. And I got the chance to see my behavior loud and clear. And I was able to make an adjustment. I'm so sorry. I've had a long day. I'm cranky. I shouldn't have treated you that way. And that's what he's talking about there. Now, that's a great outcome. It doesn't always happen. But just to enable someone's disrespectful, cruel, harsh behavior with no consequences is not what this verse is talking about. Okay. So for some reason, I think in the church, we have this image that a godly wife is this perpetual victim and puts up with anything and just keeps forgiving. And, and you're really challenging that to say that is not necessarily the godly way of handling a destructive husband. So I don't what... think it's the godly way of handling any husband. So, exactly. so I've been married, you know, 47 years to the same man. And one of the strengths of our marriage is that we are better people today, both of us, than we were when we got married. Why did that happen? Because we allowed each other to provide critical feedback in each other's life. So when I would say to my husband, hey, I I think you're being really insensitive here. He would listen. Or when he'd say something to me, like, I think you're being really critical here. I would listen. And so in any healthy relationship, Hebrews 3.13 says, let us encourage one another day after day, lest any one of us become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so God has designed human beings to grow in community and grow in relationship, nowhere more important than in marriage. And so the role of a a wife or a husband is to be each other's mirror, their best friend, the person who has your back. And so if I have lipstick on my teeth, or if I have bad breath, and I'm in a speaking event, my husband's going to tell me, he's going to be the first one to tell me. Hey, here, here's a take tech, you know, or here's a, here's a, I'll toy. <laughs> a eat it quick before you talk to people. Right. Because and it hurts my feelings, but he's not doing it to hurt my feelings. He's doing it to help me show up better. 
Now, in a normal relationship, that's how it works. In a normal marriage, that's how it works. And in fact, if we go back to Proverbs 31, I love this verse because it says a wife of noble character, what is she like? And it says her husband can trust her and she will greatly enrich his life. She brings him good, not harm all the days of her life. And I would say this is a vice versa. And he does that for her too, but I'm going to capitalize on this. She or he will greatly enrich his life. And so if you are only enabling someone to stay immature, sinful, small, abusive, if you're doing that by your submissive behavior and you're calling that godly, you're not enriching his life. You're crippling him the same as you would be crippling a child if you didn't let them go to school or you didn't challenge them to do their own homework and you were doing everything for them. That's not helping them. That's crippling them or enabling them to stay immature and small. And so I think this is where we've gotten it mixed up as godly women. We're called to be godly women. We're called to be godly wives. But what does that look like? And it sometimes means speaking the truth in love, not to harm our husband any more than my husband's trying to harm me when he says, take a tic-tac. He's trying to help me show up in my best self. But in a destructive marriage, that's not allowed. You're not allowed to give feedback. And when you've tried, you've gotten squashed. You've gotten beat up. You've gotten maybe physically harmed, emotionally beat up and silenced. So what do you do, Leslie? I mean, if you're, I know we have women that are listening right now and they're married to selfish, maybe narcissistic, angry, controlling men, and they want to be a godly wife. And obviously the wallflower victim thing isn't what he needs and it's not working. So what should they practically do and start to apply in these marriages so that they're doing what's best for him and for them and their children? So let's just take the Bible, for example, and and look at Jesus's protocol for having this kind of conversation with someone. God cares about relationships and he cares about marriage very much. And he's created a relationship so that there is safety and trust so that a family, individuals in this relationship, husband, wife, children can grow and thrive in a safe and trusting environment. So when that's not happening and there's not safety and there's not trust in that environment because there's abuse and there's deceit and there's addictions and there's other big major sins, and then the woman's told to just be silent and put up with this, this is creating a generation of people who are going to grow up and repeat the same patterns. And we don't want that to happen. We don't want the sins of the fathers to be passed down to the next generation. So Jesus gives us a pattern to have conversations in relationships. And the first is in Matthew 7. I just want to read it here. It's just the first paragraph or the first two paragraphs. Do not judge others and you will not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is a standard by which you will be judged. So I think that is a good thing because all of us are imperfect. All of us come to marriage flawed. All of us have our issues. We have our baggage. We have our growth areas that we need to grow in. We're still immature, if we, especially if we get married young. And But even when we're married in our 40s, we still have growth to do. Even in our 60s, we have growth to do. And so if we're expecting a perfect spouse, we're going to be disappointed. And mm-hmm. so Jesus is saying, hey, be realistic here. Treat people like you would want to be treated. Um, and so don't pick on people. Don't be overly critical. Don't judge them as what's wrong with you because you do this because there's plenty wrong with you too. Don't have that kind of attitude in a relationship or it's not going to work. And then he goes on and he says, why worry about the speck in your friend's eye 
when you have a log in your own. So what, again, when we have this self-righteous, I'm perfect, you're a loser kind of attitude, especially in marriage, that's going to lead to a horrible relationship in any relationship, especially in marriage. But even a girlfriend, if you have a girlfriend who's full of pride and she's always trying to fix you and correct you and change you, you don't want to be around her. And so understand that any relationship takes some acceptance of one another's weak spots. Jesus says, don't judge and don't keep trying to fix someone else, worrying about their specs when you've got your own work to do. How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. That's where it talks about, hey, Peter's saying, be godly. If Don't try to take the stuff out of your husband's eye if you're reacting in sin yourself. It won't work. Right. So this is the godly behavior part. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then, then you mm-hmm. will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So it's not saying never speak up, never tell the truth. Don't go to your husband and say, hey, this isn't okay. But do your own work first. And this is what we talk a lot about in our groups and our coaching groups and our membership group of Conquer. We talk about, hey, you can spend a lot of time focusing on what's wrong with him and plenty is wrong with him. But it's really important for you to look at yourself. Are you too passive? Are you too accommodating? Are you too fearful to speak the truth in love? What's going on with you? And then you can have this conversation. But the last thing that Jesus says that I think is really important for the audience who's listening and here, he says, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. In other words, he says, don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls and turn and attack you. This is really an important piece of scripture that Jesus himself is saying that you just can't have conversations with certain people. Going back to 1 Peter 3, that's what 1 Peter is referring to. Hey, you've tried having conversations with your husband. You've tried to get him to understand. You've tried to get him to see himself more clearly. You've tried to do this in a bad way and a good way, and nothing's happening. Don't keep doing it. Don't keep throwing your pearls before swine, your pearls, your heart, your needs, your desires. What do you do instead? You let reality hit them, which is consequences, tough consequences. You let life, hey, I'm not going to continue walking with you this way anymore. And you might not say that anymore. You might just show that. So would that look like, you know, when he wants to get frisky, you tell him no? I mean, what what specifically are you saying as far as consequences, if you could give some examples or ideas? Yeah, so, so that might be one. So let's say that he wants to get frisky and he's been verbally vomiting all over you all night, or he's been distant and ignoring you and putting you down and making fun of you in front of the kids or just inattentive for the last you know, month or so, and all of a sudden he needs sex. And so he wants you to be all there for him. I think you could have a honest attempt at a conversation. Hey, I'd like some good sex too, but I don't want to have it when I feel angry with you, or I feel like you've been ignoring me for three weeks, or I'm not just an object to use. I want to be a person that you love. And I don't feel that. I don't feel any emotional connection with you at all. 
And I'm not willing to lie and pretend with my body that things are fine when they're not fine. And you're not willing to have any kind of conversation or work on anything so that it's good for both of us. And you can say those hard words in love, in the hopes that he will remove the speck out of his eye or remove the log out of his eye as you've done your own work and can say that in love. You're saying that so that your marriage can be repaired. You're not saying that to say you're a lousy husband. But if our marriage can't be repaired, I'm not going to lie and pretend anymore that we're fine when we're not fine. Or here's another example. Let's say that you've used words, ad infidem to say to your husband, I think you're drinking too much. I think you're drinking too much. I think you're drinking too much. I don't like you drinking so much. I think it's affecting your kids. I think it's affecting your parenting. I think it's affecting the way the kids see you. And he won't hear you. All right. So it's tempting to start mumbling and grumbling and putting him down in front of the kids. It's tempting to make fun of him. It's tempting to yell at him. It's tempting to shut down and be angry and resentful toward him. Those are all, hey, this is your work to do. That's because that's our natural reaction. That's our natural reaction. So you've used words, they don't work. So what else could you use? Well, you might use your godly behavior. I won't drive with you that way. Nope, I'm not getting in the car anymore because you're drinking and driving. I'm not letting the kids get in the car with you anymore. You decide to drink and drive, I decide not to drive with you. I'll call an Uber. I'm not getting in the car with you. So I think those are consequences. I'm not sleeping with you. I'm not having a conversation with you when you drink alcohol. So what about women who are dealing with a super controlling husband? Maybe it's in the area of finances and she's treated like a child and she doesn't have access to the money. What are some practical ways that she could maybe show him the consequences of his controlling, over-controlling behavior? Headship doesn't mean that you get to micromanage and control another adult's life. Being an adult woman who decides to get married, she does not sign away her right to make a decision just because she's married. This has really been a skewed um, version of headship and submission from very conservative or patriarchal kind of mindsets, but I don't think it's biblical. When Jesus trained his disciples in leadership and headship, um, he used a very humble example of foot washing to illustrate what the head looks like. So the head looks like a servant. And so headship means you get to initiate. Headship is the initiator. So headship is I get to initiate sacrificial servanthood in my family. And the feminine role is I get to initiate sacrificial submission in the family. Does it mean that the woman never initiates sacrificial servanthood? No, she does. And it doesn't mean that the husband never initiates sacrificial submission because the Bible talks about mutuality in all of that, as well as specific roles in marriage. So I think if there's mutual sacrificial love and mutual submission, there isn't as much conflict as we tend to get in destructive marriages because we're not having a sacrificial view of headship. We're having an authority view of headship, that I am your authority. I get to make all the decisions. You need to listen to me. You're not to dissent. You have no voice. You have no choice. And that misuse of authority and that oppressive voice in a marriage or in a church is specifically called out by God as sinful as oppressive, as wrong. This again goes back to the passages that we've been talking about in 
first Peter or in Matthew seven or in Proverbs 31, do we tell the woman who's being oppressed to just try harder to put up with oppression? Or do we say to the person who's being oppressed, how do you resist oppression in a godly way? Yes. How and I think that's a really important thing that Jesus taught. When we go back to Jesus's teaching, for example, the Romans were oppressing the Jews. And two illustrations that he gave around that is when someone's oppressing you, when someone forces you to walk one mile, the, the Roman soldier could force a Jew to carry their pack and walk a mile. If someone forces you to do that, guess what? Use your agency you still have choices here and go two miles. Resist their control over you by saying, I get to decide, I'll carry this an extra mile. Or when someone slaps you across the cheek in a disrespectful way, turn the other cheek. In other words, don't retaliate. Remember, you have choices. Martin Luther King said it best when he said, when someone treats you like a nobody, you need to remember that you're a somebody. And that's your work to do. And so Jesus is telling you that there is resistance to oppression. It's not the way we talk about in, you know, striking someone back or repaying evil for evil. It's the resistance of recognizing you have choices to make. So to answer your question, when a woman is under oppressive control, the first thing to do is to say, hey, I'm not a child and I'd like to make my own decisions on certain things. For example, I'd like to make my own decisions on how long my hair is or what I wear or what I eat. I'd also like my make decisions about our family finances. I think I can manage our food budget. I think I can manage knowing what the money is in the bank and spending it wisely. I think I can manage having my own credit card and deciding what kinds of clothes the kids need for school and all of those kind of things. I'm an adult. I think I can do that. Now, if you never say that and you just submit he never has a chance to reflect and say, wow, you're right. You're not a child. I need to be different or show you that he has no intention of letting you be an individual in this marriage and he is going to oppress and control you. And that's important information for you to know, yeah. right? I remember having a friend when I wrote my book, How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong, her husband was very controlling and her idea was I to just submit. And so she began to get sicker and sicker and sicker mm -hmm. and emotionally, mentally, and physically. And he finally asked her, he said, you know, I can't remember what he asked her about their marriage. And she said, I would rather die than stay married to you. She finally told him the truth. And he said, oh my gosh, like why? And she said, because you never let me be me. I wash the dishes. It's not the right way. I do this. It's not the way your mom did it. I cook this meal. It's not the right way. And he said, why didn't you tell me? Wow. Why did you tell me? So, so she had to own that I think submission was to just let you do it your way and just resent the heck out of you for 25 years and get my body all sick. So I think it's up to us to say, hey, I don't want to be treated like a child anymore. I think I have a pretty good brain. I made pretty good decisions before we got married and I'd like to continue to make some decisions. We can partner together on decisions and discuss them, but I'd like input and I'd like you to value that input. And when you speak up for yourself, you're giving your husband the opportunity to reflect and say, wow, my dad always did it this way, but you're right. I, I need to treat you more like a partner, not just a child. Or how dare you question my headship, woman, you need to submit and you need to do it my way or the highway. That gives you important information as a woman. Who are you married to and who does he want to become? 
So what does she do if he says, well, you are a child and I think I do it better and my way or the highway. What does she do at that point? Consequence wise, like we were talking about. She has to decide whether she's going to enable that thinking or whether she is going to speak out and speak the truth in love against that kind of thinking. And that just like if someone thought some conspiracy theories or whatever, and for her to say, Hey, I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what scripture teaches. And I'm not going to do that before the Lord. I don't believe that God's asking me to do that. So does that look like I'm going to go get my own job and, and have my own account and it could for some women. Yeah. It could for some women to say, maybe you want to get a job. Maybe you'd love to work part-time. Maybe you're not a full-time love and stay at home mom. And you'd like to get some fresh air and you'd like to work part-time and he doesn't want you to, because then you won't be available for him at all hours, at all times, whenever he wants you to serve him. And you say, Hey, I am not just your wife. I am also a person and I need more. And you say that, and he disrespects that you might still have to just go do that and get yourself a part-time job and save your money and say, Hey, I don't have any access to money to buy kids gifts that I want to buy or give my parents money. If they need money when they're older, I need to have some access to my own money. And so I'm going to earn money to do that, whether you like it or not. And I think this is part of helping change a destructive cycle into a more healthy cycle. Now you have no control whether he hears you or not, but if you enable his wrong view of marriage, submission, headship, and the Bible to stay as the narrative in your life and in the marriage, that's not healthy either. Mm -hmm. Leslie, I got to tell you, it drives me crazy because as you're saying this stuff, it makes sense and it is scriptural and it doesn't take a Hebrew or Greek scholar to figure it out. So why are so many pastors giving, I remember reading a blog that you wrote recently where you just challenged this one pastor on his blog who was giving advice to a woman, obviously in a very destructive, controlling marriage. And he was telling her, you know, just forgive, just love, just submit, lean into God. And why are pastors giving advice like that instead of saying, that's not the best thing for your husband. And this is what a godly woman looks like. It is so confusing, I think, to a woman who is hearing one thing from her pastor and coming here and getting the right advice, in my opinion. I'm going to say that I think most pastors don't get a whole lot of training in any kind of counseling or any kind of, especially domestic violence or the whole dynamics of an abusive relationship. They get zero in that. And even, even marriage and family therapists, sometimes in their master's program up until recently had absolutely no training in recognizing abusive, destructive relationship. Um, And so the typical counseling or let's, you know, work it out, let's work on communication skills don't really work in this kind of dynamic. And so let's just give them the benefit of the doubt is that they're not seeing it as an abusive relationship. They're seeing it as the normal growing pains of marriage. And they're seeing it as just let it go and be forgiving and being long suffering. And they're not seeing it in the dangerous way that it might be long-term when it's those kind of things. But even when a woman is very specific with her pastor and said, hey, my husband has cheated on me three times. He's hitting me. He's watching porn. He's 
verbally abusive and saying these words and these words and these words. And I would just encourage women who are listening, if you're going to go to your pastor or even your Christian counselor, stay away from labels, like stay away from saying my husband's narcissistic or he's sociopathic or he's abusive or he's emotionally abusive. Stay away from those labels um, because immediately, especially pastors have been trained to be suspicious of that. Like, who are you to diagnose someone or counselors are going to question, who are you to diagnose someone? And it's going to get off on a rabbit trail. Instead say, this is what my husband does. This is what my husband says. As if you were showing a video of his behavior. Last night, he punched a hole in the wall. When we're driving and he gets mad at someone on the road, he swerves in and out of traffic, driving 80 miles an hour, two inches away from the bumper in front of someone. One time I was scared for our life. Our kids were screaming in the back seat, daddy, you're going to kill us. I can't live like this anymore. That should do it, right? You would think. You would think, and you would think that a pastor would see that as serious stuff. And a lot of them do these days. I will give them credit for learning from their mistakes. Some have, some haven't. I think the bugaboo that we get against for conservative pastors and and a lot of people is that we so value the sanctity of marriage. We forget about the safety and the sanity of the people in the marriage. And so God doesn't value the sanctity of marriage more than he does the individuals in it, the safety and sanity. Now I'm not talking about, oh, I just want to be happy kind of thing. I'm talking about the safety and the sanity, because there are a lot of unhappy moments in marriage, and that's not a reason to separate or get divorced. There may be unhappy seasons in marriage, but when you don't trust your spouse and you don't feel safe with that spouse, it's impossible to grow and thrive and feel healthy. Leslie, can you give us some scriptural examples and support for her taking these stances? Because if she's going to do it, I want her to feel confident that what she's doing is biblical, even if somebody may not agree with her. Yeah. So we started this podcast with talking about first Peter, where he talks about, you know, if you suffer for doing good and, and Jesus in Matthew five, if you suffer for doing good. So let's look at Romans now where it says, Paul says to not be overcome by evil, which is very possible when you're living with someone who's very evil toward you with wicked. And so do not be overcome by this evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, let me just unpack this for a bit. I want you to imagine that you're being shot with a poison dart. And so once you get hit with that dart, that dart's poison is coursing through you. You must apply an antidote. Or if you were bitten by a rattlesnake, you must apply an antidote in order for you to stay well, in order for you to get healthy, or you're going to die. And so that's what Paul's talking about when he says overcome evil. He's not talking about overcoming the evil person. He's talking about overcoming the evil that's being coursing through your body because of you being disrespected, you being abused, you're coursing through hatred, you're feeling bitter and resentful, you're tempted to retaliate. All those things are going through your body, your soul, your mind. And so he's saying, hey, how do you deal with that? Do not be overcome by that. Overcome it with good. So let me give you five or six scriptural, what does good look like? So the first thing, Proverbs 12, 17 says that it is good that you protect yourself. The prudent see danger and make a plan, do something, seek refuge. And it also says in that verse that those who don't do that, those who are naive and those who are simple-minded, they're not prudent. Those who ignore the danger suffer the consequences. 
So it is good that you protect yourself and your children from violence. When Herod was seeking to kill baby Jesus in the New Testament, Joseph didn't just stay passive and trust God. And God didn't just stay passive and tell Joseph to trust God. God's angel woke Joseph up in a dream and he said, flee. It is good to protect yourself from danger. Second, Ephesians 5.11 says, it is good that you expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. It is good that you tell someone, I'm not saying put it on Facebook or out your husband publicly to the whole world, but you, if you're experiencing some pretty evil stuff, sexual abuse, financial, illegal mismanagement, you're going to owe a boatload of money to the IRS because your husband's cheating, whatever's going on, asking you to do sexually perverted things, expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. You are not being a disloyal wife. It is good that you expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. The Bible tells you to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Tell someone, get some help. And if you're not getting appropriate help from your church community, look us up online or call the local domestic violence shelter. Um, Their 800 number is 1-800-799-SAFE. So it's 1-800, you can remember that, 799 is close to 800, and then SAFE, S-A-F-E. And I will put that number in the show notes as well. Okay. So it is good to protect yourself, Proverbs 12, 17. It is good that you expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness, Ephesians 5, 11. It is good that you speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 25. I think sometimes this advice of trying harder reminds me of that children's story, The Emperor's New Clothes, where the emperor had trusted people around him to give him advice. And these charlatans came in and pretended like they were weaving some magic fabric that only smart people could see. And when the emperor believed them and he put on these fake clothes that were no clothes at all, and he was butt naked, his servants and his people who were there to give him good advice just smiled and said, oh, you look wonderful. That's not what we're called to do to our spouse is smile and say, you're the best husband in the world when he is abusive and destructive and sinfully oppressive. And so we're to speak the truth in love. That's Would that good. go along with the uh, faithful or the wounds of a friend? Yes. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So when my husband says you have bad breath, he's not saying it to hurt my feelings. It hurts my feelings, but he's not saying it to hurt my feelings. He's saying it so that I can take corrective action. Or when he's said to me, hey, I think you're being too harsh on the kids, or I've said that to him. We're not saying that to make them feel bad as a parent. We're saying that to help them course correct, to be the kind of parent they wanna be. It is good to stop someone from sinning against you when possible. Now it's not always possible. Jesus tells us, When someone sins against you, not just anyone, when a brother or sister sins against you, your husband, when someone sins against you in Matthew 18, you are to talk with him to see if they can be, they can listen and be reconciled. And if they won't listen, Jesus says, hey, take it up a notch, bring it to the church, bring it to your counselor for you just to stay silent and endure trying harder is not good for you, but it's not good for your kids. It's not good for him. It's not good for your marriage. It is good to stop someone from sinning against you when possible because it breaks the relationship when they keep sinning against Mm -hmm. you. 
And so Jesus says in Matthew 18, go to them, talk to them. And if they won't listen, it does break the relationship. Jesus admits at the end of Matthew 18, he says, and if they refuse to listen, they were a brother and sister in the beginning of that sentence. Now he's saying, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. The relationship of trust and safety is broken. And sometimes I would say to stop someone from sinning against you might mean hanging up a phone call, maybe blocking them for the time being or walking away or just not participating in an abusive conversation. Would you agree? I would. It might also mean calling the police. Yes. Right. Because we have in Romans 13, the government that has been created by God to protect us against evildoers. Now, in our culture right now, that's not happening so well. But (laughs) God's ideal was that the government was created to protect us. In Romans 13, it says, hey, you have no fear of the government if you're not doing anything wrong. But if you're doing something wrong, it's there to protect you against evildoers. And so call the police. Call the police if you need to, if you're being physically harmed. Another good is in Galatians 6, 7, it says it is good. For someone to experience the consequences, what you sow, you reap. And so it's good for a wife to allow her husband to experience consequences for his behavior. So if she needs to call the police when he's abusing her, a night in jail might do him good. Or if he is punching holes in the walls, taking pictures of those holes in the walls and show them to your pastor. This may begin to wake him up to the destructiveness of his ways, which could lead him to repentance. If you just pretend that this is all okay and normal, he is going to stay blind. It's good for you as a victim, as a wife, to see someone's fruit of repentance before you reconcile. So let's say that you have called the police. Let's say you have separated. You've done that as a way of saying, hey, I'm not living like this. I'm not pretending this is okay. I love you. I want us to work it out. But unless you're willing to do your work, I'm not pretending this is okay. This is this is not normal, everyday kind of squabble stuff. This is deal breaker stuff. Addictions, adultery, deceptions, abuse. These are deal breaker stuff in a relationship because it destroys trust and safety. And so if someone says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, What are the fruits of that? What are their actions? The Bible tells us that we have ears to hear and we have eyes to see. Both are important in seeing whether someone is truly repentant. And a really good example of that is in Genesis 42 through 45, where Joseph was deeply wounded, abused by his older brothers who threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery. And Joseph, when he met them years later, and Joseph was Pharaoh's right-hand man, he had forgiven them. But he had not reconciled with them. He didn't trust them. Even when they came for food, he was kind to them. He was good to them, but he didn't trust them and expose himself vulnerably to them until he tested them to see if they had truly repented of their wicked ways. And last, and this may be hard for some women to really grasp, that 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, it is good to pursue your own good and the good of others. It is good to pursue your own well-being as well as the well-being of others. It's not just the well-being of others that matter. It matters for your well-being too. And I'm not just talking about your comfort. I'm talking about your growth and your well-being. And you are not wrong or sinful or prideful to want abuse to stop. And your husband 
to change. And you are right for seeking your safety and things that will be good for you and not just being passive, enduring hardship. Now, if you were in a concentration camp, that's a whole different story. But marriage was never meant to function like a concentration camp. And so understand what God's will is for you and for your husband. Leslie, thank you so much. And for those of you listening and not able to get all those down, I'm going to be offering a free download so that you can get some of these scriptures and have them physically on your phone or or print them out so that it can hopefully give you a little bit more courage and right standing in your thinking as you deal with a destructive spouse. Would you pray with us, Leslie? I will. Lord, I just pray for the women that are listening. Some are in a marriage that's just annoying. Their husband isn't picking up his clothes or buying her flowers very often or as attentive or as caring as she would like. And Lord, those are seasons in every marriage. And sometimes those are some personality qualities in our spouses that are disappointing. They don't have to be destructive if we can learn that we all live with imperfect, flawed people who have some really amazing strengths and some weaknesses. But Lord, also many women who listen here are in toxic abusive, destructive relationships where they can't be themselves. They can't grow. Their children can't grow. They're living scared. They're living in depleted environments, Father, where they're being oppressed, controlled, verbally battered, sexually used. And they feel hopeless that you see them and that you care. Lord, I pray that they would sense that you do see them and you do care and that you would rise up people in the church to show that more fully. But Lord, that they would sense even by you bringing them to today to listen to this podcast, that you see them and you care, just like Hagar in the wilderness after she was discarded by Abraham and Sarah. And she said, the God who sees, sees me. Father, may they feel that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. If you need clarity on whether your marriage is difficult, disappointing, or destructive, go to leslievernick.com forward slash start for Leslie's free quick start guide. It's totally private and will help you get clear on your next step. Again, that's leslievernick.com forward slash start. Until next time, may God bless your relationships with him with yourself and with others.